Namaste to all of you. Tonight, I'm going to continue with the comments on uh, some of the sayings and actions of Jesus contained in the Gospel of Luke. We have just recently moved to the chapter number 17 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus first gave uh, gives a few mixed teachings, probably teachings which one or another of the witnesses remembered, and they said, what about when Jesus said that thing about the sin that you should forgive, forgive, and so on, and then they wrote it down, and they said, yeah, 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 sure. I remember that was between the story when he did this, and between time when he went to Jerusalem and did that. Like, so in this way, many of these sayings, they are just collections of what has happened, not exactly as if they were video recorded and rendered faithfully, but as faithfully as they could render some of his sayings. So he spoke about the story with the sin, that on one hand one should take care, and he says if your brother sins, rebuke him, and all that. But he says, if your brother comes 70 times per day and says, sorry, I really botched it, and if it's the true thing, then you have to exert your power of forgiveness time and again. I comment already last time that there are situations where the brother tries to take advantage of this, and he does it on purpose, and then it becomes stupidity not to see that there is a project there. So I'm not insisting on that. Please look at the previous satsang and see that. And then glued to this suddenly is that the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Uh, it's another story from another time because what he's going to say right now has not really any connection with what she said, just a few lines above in the text. So it must be that these are like little flowers, you know, little bullets, little things which happen with Jesus, not necessarily one five minutes after the other one, but at various times of the same day or a few days difference between them and so on. So the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, this is one of the functions of the gurus. The teacher is there to increase the faith of the student. The student says, is it worth it for me to practice the art of dying technology when I don't know if there is life after death? Because I have not seen the life after death. I have not witnessed. Well, yeah, I was in an afterlife before I was born in this physical body, in between this incarnation and the previous one, which I may have had, but I don't remember. My subconscious mind does have some vague uh, intuition of it, but that is not like a scientific proof. That's not like the ultimate proof of anything. So basically, I don't know if there is a life after death. And now my guru is telling me, you have to train in Udana Vayu, and you have to train your Sahasrara so that you can die in a spiritual way whenever that will happen, tonight or a million nights from today. But nevertheless, you have to be prepared to deal with death in a spiritual way. And then I'm losing faith. I'm having a challenge here, a challenge there. Life is difficult. There are a million problems in the daily life. you know. And then I'm kind of sitting there and saying, ah, look, Guruji told me to do this and to do this, and I'm not really doing much of it. 
And the reason is that I cannot motivate myself enough. And it's like, I believe, but maybe there is a part of me which doesn't even believe in this thing. And then shall I do it? Shall I not do it? You know? And that's why it's the function of the guru to come periodically to his disciples, like have a satsang or have something like this, and give them faith. The guru is the one who gives faith and says, listen to me. I've been there, I've seen that, you know, that story that there exists a state called Nirvana, which belongs to Sahasrara, that state which is called Nirvikalpa Samadhi or Baba Samadhi or whatever the nature of that school is where they are teaching these things, that state exists. I've been there, I've experienced that. There is a top of the mountain, the top of the mountain is in the clouds, but you can reach the top of the mountain because I've been to the top of the mountain and I know that it exists. And then the disciples are motivated. Then the disciples say, you know, I don't know if I still believe 100%, but there is this man who looks into my eyes and says, I've been there, you know. And that kind of increases my faith with 20% or something. And 20% increase in my faith is good enough because tomorrow morning I'm going to practice. Tomorrow morning I'm going to do this practice because I feel that I am more motivated. Without a guru, without a person that can witness, bear witness to the truth, it's very difficult. Even Milarepa and even Buddha himself, they had gurus. They had different gurus that taught them different technologies. And by using those technologies, they went far, far away. It's true that after he left Guru Marpa, Milarepa went and spent 20 years or 25 years alone in the mountains. The faith which Guru Marpa gave to him in the first one, two, three years was enough to keep him going because already after five years of incredibly practice, he started getting some results of his own. His third eye opened. And then as he was getting results every day or every week or whatever, then the guru was not necessary anymore because he was getting directly. And he said, now I know that Guru Marpa was right. Everything which he told me, look, it's here. There is still 30% which I haven't seen. But if 70% was proven to be true, then I guess that the other 30% is also true. And I'm going to give it another 10 years of my life to discover that 30% which I haven't discovered yet. And in this way, then we always need this motivation. Here the disciples of Jesus, they call it faith. Increase our faith. Why do they need faith? Because Jesus is telling them, forgive your brother even 70 times, you know, and it's a bit superhuman. It's a bit like, hey, you know, and what if I don't forgive him? Is it going to be that bad in front of God? What if I don't have the power? Like you are asking me to carry a big lodestone on my shoulders with all this moral and ethical discipline which you mentioned. What if I, you know, I don't have enough faith, so increase my faith, help me to believe in what you say a little bit more so I can feel motivated. That's why they ask in increasing about faith, but look look what Jesus does to them, because he's not really increasing their faith. He is talking about faith. So it's possible that even the translation of this Verse, when the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
maybe they said actually speak to us a face. And the translation from Aramaic and uh, Jewish, from Hebrew, and then to Greek and to Latin, and here in modern English, because this is, I'm not reading from the King James Bible from the 17th century, but from a modern version in modern language, then automatically what we are saying here is that the question was about faith in general, and I would agree that the disciples could have shamelessly told to Jesus, we feel that our faith is a little bit diminished, increase our faith. But uh, on the other hand, I remember having been with some of my own spiritual teachers in the past, no? and then there were not many such situations, definitely, but there would be situations of a break, now in which the disciples did not address any relevant question, and therefore the guru was conveniently silent. And there was a kind of an awkward silence, like we were ten people with our spiritual teacher, and the spiritual teacher didn't have much to say. He was rather silent. No? And then one of the girls, one of the enthusiastic women who was there, she suddenly would say, but Guruji, Guruji, tell us something wonderful. No, because telling something wonderful, like we do in the satsang, because Jesus tells and does wonderful things, is like a drug. Because when you get that speech from the Guru, then it increases your aspiration and you feel that tomorrow you can practice more yoga because you have been motivated tonight. No? So this girl unconsciously spoke the truth. She said, Guruji, tell us something wonderful. And he was, you know, he started laughing in a bit of a cynical way. And he said, whatever her name was, olive oil or whatever her name was, you know, he said, olive oil, do you think I'm Santa Claus? You're like, what am I? You know, I am some old man who is supposed to tell fairy tales to the kids to keep them happy. You know, it's like, what am I? A sack without bottom, a bottomless sack inspiring stories in a certain way. Yes, but in another way, it's also a bit superhuman or not quite so. Yes, it is the function of the Guru whenever they can to increase aspiration and to go into the mechanism of faith. But remember, it has to be included into a certain flow. And uh, there have been many Manipuristic Zen type of teachers in Zen Buddhists who are not very storytelling, not very much like Santa Claus. They were grumpy. They were sometimes beating up their disciples with a stick, you know, the big long sticks of the Zen masters. You know, like not encouraging the faith in another way. In another way. You now, if I'm like Milarepa, I'm encouraging the faith. I'm not telling you stories, but I'm looking and saying, ah, it's nine o'clock, meditation time. Mm -hmm. And then the people sit there and they say, at least our guru is doing meditation with us. Other people say, hey, meditation I can do at home, 
and the telepathic communication with my guru is still there and Shiva is everywhere. When I meet with my guru, I want him to tell me something. I want him to do something which he cannot do from three kilometers away. I want him to do something which he can do only when he's in. I want him to touch me. I want him to tell me a story. I want him to speak to me so that I'm getting inspired. So as you can see, there are different types of schools, different types of education, different types of disciples with different needs, and different types of gurus who give one thing or another thing. So that was clear. So the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith or talk to us about faith, which Jesus has done. He replied, first of all, it's a resuming of the same statement, which in another gospel, in Matthew or Mark, I forgot right now, maybe both of them, Jesus says something very, very similar. But there he says it in a more connected thing with what just happened and with the questions they have been. Here, this bullet story is like put there without really connection. Like what connection does it have with the fact that you should talk to your brother and if your brother is mistaken, you should forgive them. And okay, and then people say, okay, now something about faith. And Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will be obeyed to you. Actually, the verset which St. Mark of Ethiopia has quoted was not about a mulberry tree. It was about a mountain, that if you have faith as much as a mountain seed, you will tell to that mountain there, go move yourself and cast yourself in the sea, it was something about the sea included in that statement, but it was a mountain which sounds impossible to move, and the mountain shall move itself and stand right in the middle of the sea. Here, somebody has heard, did you know how it is, when five people send a message, and they do this so-called wireless telephone. I say a sentence to my neighbor, my neighbor tells it to the neighbor, and when we do it with ten people, we ask the last one to say what was said. And it's completely different from what the first person said. No, It's because every time when you render it, you modify the message. And this being the thing, somebody modified the message. We don't know if Jesus spoke about a mountain or about a mulberry tree. To me, it sounds more like he spoke about a mountain. No? But here to Luke, who had never seen Jesus in his life, remember? To Luke, it came that Jesus something about moving and uprooting a mulberry tree, which is equally good, because telling to a mulberry tree, a tree, shoo, go away, go into the sea, and go live there, it's never going to happen, right? It's as difficult as moving a mountain. It's like you are talking to inanimated objects. Even if the mulberry tree is alive, it apparently doesn't have the capacity to pull out its roots and to move 20 meters away until it goes into shallow water or someplace like this. And therefore, they are equally impossible, only that somebody tells this story with a mountain and somebody tells it with a mulberry tree. And Jesus basically says, if you have enough faith, which he considers very little, the mustard seeds are really, really tiny. So he says, if you have this much faith, a little bit, 
you will tell to the mulberry tree to be uprooted and go get planted into the sea, and it will obey to you. This is the key to most of the paranormal powers, to most of the cities, to most of the miracles, and to most of these things. This sort of faith. This sort of faith is from Ajna Chakra, and it can be used in spirituality, but it is not equivalent to spirituality. I have seen, starting from the lowest, most painful level, I have seen or heard examples of people suffering from schizophrenia who would mute it, go into a mystical state, which was a demonic mystical state, but still it was a mystical state, and they would self-mutilate themselves and blood would not flow. Like they would cut deep in their palm and they would look like a Uri Geller thing, like a Darth Vader thing, and blood would not come out. I knew of a guy, I actually knew this guy, he cut a cross on his forehead with a razor blade, and then he jumped like from a swimming pool, he jumped head forward on cement from the first floor, from the, not the ground floor, from the next floor, first floor as we call it in Europe, in Romania, of a building, and he landed right on his forehead. And he didn't break his skull, he didn't break his neck, he didn't have blood almost at all, but of course the family called the ambulance and they took him into a straitjacket to the mental hospital because he was fucking crazy. But in his mind, he was like, uh, the power with God is with me, the power of God is upon me, I can feel it, nothing wrong can happen to me. And the uh, monkey mind was saying, really, 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 do you really believe that? And then he cut himself, he cut himself, he said, look, you are talking nonsense, bullshit, yes, the power of God is with me. But that was the unhealthy way. If that person would have really read about Jesus, he saw that the devil told to Jesus, the devil told to Jesus, go to the temple and jump from the roof of the temple and God will tell to the angels to keep you alive and okay. And Jesus said, that's not something to be done. Because, remember that I told you many times, God does not want to interfere too many times in a game. It's exactly like a trainer in basketball that has two timeouts. He has two timeouts in 30 minutes. He cannot do five timeouts in 30 minutes because he breaks the rules. He just proposed himself, I will give two timeouts in 30 minutes. And he plays the game by the rules. Therefore, this God says, I will interfere this year, but two times. That's the maximum. That's the rule of my game. If I interfere more than two times, I have to ask, I have to allow to the demons that they also can do it more times. The more I interfere, the more I have to be fair play and give them the permission to interfere. I interfere five times, they can interfere five times. No? And God does not want them to interfere five times, therefore he holds his horses. And then suddenly a schizophrenic comes and says, Me, 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 save me, prove to me that you exist. And God says, fuck you, you are mentally sick. Like, I won't. 
I won't, not because of any schizophrenic or hysterical, wants God to prove himself, that God proved himself. There's a beautiful dialogue in, I always forget if it, I think it was Borges in the Sand Book, but I'm not sure. The famous writer has a novel which is called The Rose of Paracelsus. Paracelsus is Rose. And there is a guy who comes to Paracelsus and says, I know you are a great alchemist, and I know that the sign of your utmost success is that you can, for example, burn a rose until it turns to ashes, and then you will say, hocus pocus abracadabra, and the rose will come back, will be rematerialized from its ashes, like the phoenix bird myth. So he said, I want you to do that for me, and if you do that for me, I will be your disciple for the rest of my life. But I need to know that you are the right thing. And Paracelsus and him ping-pong with each other, Paracelsus telling him clearly, I cannot, I will not. You are not going to bend my arm that you are going to conditionally become my disciple. Either you become my disciple unconditionally, or if not, I am not going to allow myself. If I allow one compromise, then this will continue forever. You will consider it that from time to time when you get into the dark zone, into the dark night of your soul, you'll come back to me and you'll ask me again and again. And I'm not allowed to because your dark night of the soul and other things, they are from God and you are supposed to cross that desert alone. And therefore it's not possible. Some things have to come from your soul. And eventually the disciple gets, cannot take it and he leaves. And five minutes after he leaves, Paracelsus, he had burned the rose to prepare it, you know, like he gave him to the edge. He took him to the edge. And Paracelsus, after he lives permanently, he whispers something to the rose, and then the rose is whole. He holds it. Like Paracelsus could do it the whole time. But there are rules of the game which ignorant souls cannot understand the rules of the game, that miracles are not made to be done and performed. Remember when they asked Jesus to perform one last miracle to prove that you are the Son of God? He gave them the finger. He gave them the finger big time. No, one miracle in front of the priests and would have probably demonstrated that he was from God. And then they would have simply said, okay, can you be friends with us at least? They would have started bargaining with him, negotiating with him. No, but no, Jesus was completely an asshole when they interviewed him. And he answered arrogantly, unpleasantly, totally sharp and totally right, but not friendly at all, provoking them constantly, stepping on their toes constantly, like he was asking for it. He was asking for it, really. And he got it, of course. So, therefore, here with a story with a faith, there is a very big problem. Because this faith is something which belongs to Ajna Chakra. Let's take a case from yoga. You have information from Kashmiri Shaivas. I am Shiva. The Guru tells you, you are Shiva. Exactly as the Guru of Laleshvari told her, and the Guru of Abhinava Gupta told him. And the question is, intellectually, 
I can admit that there is a system of practice called Trika or whatever, which does that. I can admit that there is a consciousness which is exactly like that. I can admit that people who go in that state of consciousness see it like that, feel it like that, and maybe they can materialize roses or something, but they will never show it to me because there is a certain rule of the game. So, that's my intellectual belief. Then I'm practicing Kashmiri Shaivism and achieve that state. For 10 minutes, I have been in a state of Samadhi, at least Nirvikalpa Samadhi, maybe even higher than that, but at least Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and it has been crystal clear, it has not been any form of jada, like I didn't fall asleep, I didn't black out, I was just frozen, and then when I come back, I say, wow. And it's like, nothing matters. No. It's like, I remember when I had this experience first time, it was May, the month of May, in Bucharest, and it was a, a cold rain, not like here, a blessing rain, but a cold rain, a spring rain, and there were pools of water, and I was walking, dragging my shoes on purpose through the water ponds on the street. Like, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel that my feet were getting cold. I couldn't feel that my socks were getting wet. It was a shitty May rainy night, and I was walking through a world which was like... I knew it was a Maya. I knew it was all a big dream. I knew nothing made any difference. I knew nothing mattered. I knew that if I had some feelings in my feet or in my... They were of no relevance whatsoever in the big picture. You know? Like, you get moved by that experience. And you cannot say, oh, maybe I didn't have that. No, you really, really, really know that you had that experience. Because that experience is the very nature of reality. And if reality doesn't show itself to be reality, it's not like nobody can come to me and say, Swami Vivekanandaji, you know, you actually, we analyzed you and how you behave and what you say and what you talk, and we can tell you, man, you are a madman. You actually never reached any state of samadhi. It's not true. It's not real. Even if the whole world shuns me and I go and live into a cave in the hills of Romania, I still am who I am, and I know what I am, and what I have done, and what I have achieved. I do not need anybody's approval for that, because the self is Shiva. The self is God. And in the moment when the nature of the self is revealed, there is nothing to say. There is no more scientific demonstration required or approval of your peers or anything like that because it has the flavor of reality. So that was step two. Step one was that my teacher told, told me, I'm Shiva, you are Shiva, I am Shiva. And I believe, yes, there should be something and it's something which I need to see, I need to experience. The second step is that I have worked and worked and worked and worked with yoga and one day it happened. My Kundalini raised, and zang, I stepped through that door. 
If I was there 10 minutes or 20 minutes or something, it's not enough. It was not enough. But hey, it was the first time. It was the first experience. No? Maybe some of you have had sex for four hours non-stop. And the first time when you had sex, you had sex for three minutes. Still, when you had sex for three minutes, you had sex for three minutes. You know, you don't know all the what's happening after four hours, but you know how sex is because you've been there for two, at least three minutes. So you have the experience. And then when you come back, your mind is influenced by it. It's like, whoa. But then you say, okay, so if it's all an illusion and I'm walking through water ponds in the rain or something like this, why don't I make like this? And like a necromancer from Raised by the Wolves, I start flying in the air like a sort of a Jesus, you know, levitating. Because I'm Shiva. And I have just tasted it. Now it's not a story from my teacher. I've seen it. And even if somebody would shoot me right now, I would still stay on the same conclusion. I've seen it. But my mind and my body will not levitate. Why? Because of the lack of faith. Because my Sahasrara has seen the truth, but my Ajna did not get the message. It's not the same chakra. They don't go together. Each one of them has their functioning. They are a team, but in a team, one member of the team has to speak another member of the team, and that takes time and practice. That's why great experts in Kashmiri Shaivas, like Lilian Silburn and others, who have analyzed it with the great living masters of the time, like with Lakshmanju and so on, and who have compared it to Buddhism, who have compared it to the regular yoga, to the normal yoga practice, other yoga branches, and all that, they have said it very clearly, that the fact that you reach a Shiva consciousness will not modify your samskaras. The samskaras are residues in the subconscious part of Ajna Chakra, and the fact that you had a state of 25 minutes of samadhi does not interfere with them. There are two things in different, two different ways. Remember that even in the great gurus, no, you cannot see, you can see very much that many samskaras had not disappeared. We had one guru who published 200 books on yoga, raised an ashram with hundreds of branches in parts of India and in the world, with many disciples. He built a university. He built a printing press. He built a kitchen for the Babas from the other ashrams. He built a hospital, a naturist hospital. He built a colony for the lepers. He, you don't believe what? And there was another great yogi who was extremely enthusiastic and sleeping two hours per night, who spoke like a tiger, who was really wild in his spirituality, he never had an ashram. He never wrote a single book. He never produced money. He couldn't even touch money. He considered money to be poisonous. And a few other things like that. One of them was a Virgo, and one of them was an Aquarius. Can you tell me 
who don't know any astrology, can you tell me, or almost no astrology, can you tell me which one of them was the Virgo and which one of them was the Aquarius? Everybody who did three months of yoga can tell you this is probably the earth sign and this is probably the air sign, which shows that those two big gurus, I'm talking about Swami Shivananda and Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, they did not burn all their samskaras. The samskara of being a Virgo and the samskara of being an Aquarius, which is a temporary thing, it's a transient thing because it's valid only for one lifetime, that thing, they did not kill it. Swami Shivananda stayed a Virgo till the end of his life. And Ramakrishna stayed an Aquarius till the end of his life. Which shows that even the fact that these people were regularly going in Samadhi and they were enlightened beings, they were not modifying all their samskaras. That means their Sahasrara was not invading their ajna and saying, reform, revolution, this is how you should be from now on. It wasn't like that. And thus, what I'm trying to tell you with this long story, it's the following, that faith is something which you have in the beginning when it makes you more like have aspiration and motivation. You get the spiritual experiences and when you got the spiritual experiences, you still need faith. You still need faith to bring it back. You've been to the top of the mountain, and from the top of the mountain you need to, build the, to bring the message down to your third eye. That function in the third eye is faith. And this faith is what makes it like, I am Shiva, and therefore I can levitate. When I do. Abhinava Gupta, who tasted these things, and who was very, very big, you can see from this how big he was, he simply said you can't even talk too much about these states of consciousness and these accomplishments, because if you talk, they start happening. Faith brings them in Ajna, and Ajna generates the eight Mahasiddhis, which can spin the universe on the little finger of the person that speaks. That means things will happen. The highest power is not the spirit, because the spirit is transcendental. The highest power is the mind, which is the horse on which the spirit is riding. And if the spirit convinces the horse, then the horse does the work. The mind does the work. And Therefore, this faith is a power, is a power of Ajna Chakra. You can see it very strongly manifested in the people that are born under the astrological sign of the Pisces, because the Pisces in astrology has a verb that qualifies it, the verb, I believe. And it's very easy for the Pisces to believe to make themselves believe. Unfortunately, most Pisces believe bullshit. And that's why astrologers say that Pisces is the hospital of the Zodiac, because Pisces can make themselves psychosomatically ill incredibly easy.
just because they believe something and then it becomes a disease in their body. And therefore, this belief is not good. There is a part of the belief, you have to be very careful with the belief because it's like nitroglycerin. It, if it explodes in the wrong place, it kills you. What if you believe that Satan is the king of this world? No. Then you become a Satanist. And some people say, yeah, but he had the faith. He had the faith, but it was the totally wrong faith. So the faith has to be inspired by the crown chakra. It's true, we get faith from the Shastras, from the literature, but the literature was written by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. It was from Sahasrara. And we have faith from the Guru, and the Guru is the one which connects us with the scriptures, with the Shastras. So this is, both of them are supposed to bring you a message from Sahasrara. And then the third level is that you go and get the experience, and the experience is, I am Shiva, and now I have to believe, to build that faith. Believe it or not, this building of the faith is the greatest part of the spiritual work. The first part is to get started, because some people are skeptical, not motivated, confused, distracted by the emotions. This is where 999 people out of 1,000 fail the test. They don't even start practicing yoga or something comparable to yoga. They don't even start because their life is distracted by too many worries, by too much confusion, and they don't even do. They don't have enough faith to climb the Mount Everest. Then some people climb the Mount Everest and they eventually make it to the top. Out of maybe a hundred people that start, maybe one has the willpower to go all the way to the top of the Mount Everest. I have started the yoga life of probably about 100,000 people in my life. One way or another, through what I published, through what I recorded on video, through my disciples, and through my direct contact, and nowadays online contact, I have put on the path of yoga probably a 100,000 people who said, tomorrow I will do something because this dude is provoking me very much, and I'm going to try to see how this works, if it works. Out of those 100,000 people, a very limited number of people, until today, I don't know what will be tomorrow, but until today, a relatively small number of people have reached the higher spiritual experiences. Opening of Ajna Chakra, opening of Sahasrara, states of Samadhi. Because even when you decide to climb Mount Everest, Mount Everest is Mount Everest. And unless you are Ramana Maharishi and it happens to you in 30 minutes, and then even your teacher will shake his head and say, I can't explain that. Like, okay, you know, miracles do happen sometimes. But if you are the average person, to climb the Mount Everest, it will take some time. In India, they evaluated traditionally that this will take 12 years, the average time. Buddha did it in six. So he was the faster case. And Paramahamsa Yogananda claims 
that some crazy people a la Milarepa, they might do it even in three years. But the average in India, the in most of the Indians probably being Sabai Sabai, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, they didn't do yoga crazily, crazily. They did it nicely, nicely, and it took them 12 years. It takes you 16 years or more than 18 years to graduate from medical school. And then you are not yet a doctor. You still have to study and be a resident doctor and do a lot of other degrees after that. So it takes you 20-something years of school to be an acceptable medical doctor. 12 years to reach the top of Mount Everest in spirituality is not even that much. It's not even that much. So there are people who want to be millionaires or want to be successful politicians. It takes them more than 12 years to reach there. Sometimes way more than 12 years. So to make the long story short, there is this first phase that I want to move my ass and do something. Then there is the faith which is maintained, stoked by your guru, who says, come on, come on, come on, one a little bit more, yes, one more season, please, of meditation, you know. And the guru is stoking the fire under your ass and giving you more motivation, more aspiration, more faith. And then, even when you have reached the final experience, when Ramakrishna reached the final experience, his guru watched him for three days, Totapuri, and then guess what? He left. He simply left. Like this guy had been 72 hours in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Auf Wiedersehen. No, like there is nothing more to say or do from me as a guru. He simply left. No? And it was so that Ramakrishna was about to have the experimental death. He stayed in that Samadhi too much continuously and he was on the verge of dying on the verge of leaving his body, which again wouldn't have costed him anything. But I wouldn't have been able to Ramakrishna anymore because his mark on this world wouldn't have existed if he allowed himself to die at that time. Soul of Ramakrishna would have still been in paradise. But I wouldn't have had the gift to be able to talk to you about Ramakrishna. So fortunately, he stayed for a while and he did some wonderful things. And so... Um, then what Ramakrishna did with his samadhi it was not the problem of Totapuri Totapuri said he will now he will decide so Ramakrishna came back he knew he had qualms about leaving his body not leaving his body whatever and then he stayed and then he started asking to God to send him disciples because he now, why, why did I get this, if not to pass it on to other people as well? So he was calling in the ether, he was getting on the roof of the ashram, and he was saying, where are the disciples which need to learn from me, and all that. So he decided to use this, and therefore Ramakrishna was believing in it. And different gurus will do it in different ways, and at different extents according to the Dharma which they got from God, like not all the Gurus had the Dharma of Ramakrishna, which was the Dharma to revive Hinduism. Hinduism was almost dying in the 19th century, and Ramakrishna plus a couple of others, they are the ones who brought Hinduism and Yoga back 
to the world and all the modern yoga started with Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, plus the help of Yogananda and company, plus the help of Ramana Maharishi. Plus, there were a number of 10 people or so who brought yoga back big time. And if these 10 people wouldn't have done it, yoga would have kind of got lost in the archives. You know, like the people who said, have you ever seen a big yogi in the last 100 years? No. But because Ramakrishna lived and because Vivekananda lived and because Shivananda and Ramana and others lived, people have said, yeah, actually there are a few very big yogis and we don't like them, we don't trust them, but they are there and we have to listen to them. They, they are upholding this tradition. So the same here with the faith. The disciples are asking a very important thing. They say, give us faith because they are on the path. But remember, the faith is valid all the time. I am Shiva, no? and uh, I guess Ramana Maharishi could say, I am Shiva or I am Brahman, because if he didn't express it in a Shaivistic way, he at least expressed it in a Vedantic way, in a Vedantic way, and he would have said, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. And if Ramana Maharishi said, I am Brahman, then why did he get cancer in his elbow? And that cancer became metastatic, and Ramana Maharishi looked like a living skeleton when he died. And he was agonizing most probably. And he died. And he was not a hundred years old or something. You know? He was not very young, but not very old as well. You know? Like if he said, I am Shiva, let this cancer go into a black hole of the universe. <laughs> Be sucked into a black hole. I have got... No, he didn't. That simply says that... I Ramana Maharishi didn't want to save his life, or it is also possible that Ram, which this is what I believe, this is what I think is the truth, that Ramana Maharishi was not having very much paranormal powers, and therefore his Ajna Chakra was not convinced. He was, it was convinced enough so that he sits there and behaves like a spiritual master. But you know, he didn't make special efforts. Like, he even admitted that at times when he was younger, he had nocturnal pollutions. A great enlightened master who got enlightened at the age of 20, like Ramana Maharishi, ejaculating in his dreams sometimes. Like, his Brahmacharya was not stellar. It was not diamond quality. It was, it was there. Of course, he was a Brahmacharya. But not 100%, 99.9, because he had dreams which he could not control. And in those dreams, he had sometimes once per year or once every six months or something. He was having a nocturnal emission. Don't forget that Ramana Maharishi was a Capricorn. And it's difficult to find somebody more skeptical than a Capricorn. The Capricorns are the materialists and the utilitarian skeptics of the Zodiac. So the Capricorn, even when he is enlightened, his spirit says, Yeah, hallelujah. And his mind says, Really? Can you convince me that that's true? Like I can see that you are a guy who gets a cancer in the elbow. Eh? What kind of I am Shiva are you? So there is a dialogue between the spirit, which knows because it has seen it, and the mind which needs hammering, like on a smith's workshop. 
The mind needs to be made red hot and beaten with a hammer so it is given the proper shape. And if you are not doing that work with self-suggestion, self-hypnosis, Hatha Yoga, Pranayama, Visualization, Raja Yoga, Mantras and a million other methods, your mind will not be convinced. There will be a rift between your mind and your spirit. And your mind will agree to a sort of a truce. Like the mind will say, okay, okay, okay. I know that I belong into the body of a person who is enlightened. And I know that the spirit which is riding on me is somehow infinite and enlightened and Shiva. But I'm not yet contaminated by this spirit. I'm not hypnotized by this spirit. I'm not convinced. I still have a monkey life of my own where I'm doing my monkey things. And when my spirit tells me now, please sit up straight. We do a meditation with my disciples. We do. The mind mocks in. And then the mind is saying, okay, now there is some spare time for me also when I'm talking to the peacocks, when I'm reading the Hindustan Times or something, you know. I'm doing something for myself. It's exactly this dialogue. So the faith is a very, very, very important function which works in the beginning, giving us aspiration and motivation. It works along the path, giving us the motivation to practice. And when we come back, it gives us the power to spiritualize our lives by the descent of the Spirit. In the case of Ramana Maharishi, the descent of the Spirit was partial. Ramana Maharishi, even when he was 50 years old, I look at him, the stories about him, the pictures with him, the, even the films which have been recorded with him, and I see a simple boy from the countryside. He is not educated, he is not like Swami Vivekananda the Great or like Shivananda or Aurobindo, who had university degrees, Yogananda even had a college degree and so on. Ramana is not like that. Ramana is a countryside boy. He's a peasant boy who got enlightened. And uh, part of it was there in his mind, in his body. And part of it was not, but he didn't need it. Because in the moment when he died, he went to Brahma Loka, he went to the world of God, and there he is right now. But others had convinced, had hammered their mind. And because they had hammered their mind, people think, oh, when you are a disciple in yoga, you have to hammer your mind. Also, when you are an advanced master in yoga, you still have to hammer your mind, but for a different purpose. The disciple is hammering the mind so that he does a hundred Udhyana Bandhas, a hundred Naulis, one hour of headstand, one hour of Pranayama, and then eventually he will have a state of Samadhi. Two states of Samadhi. Twenty-five states of Samadhi. Great. And then will he stop? Maybe he doesn't need to do so much Udhyana or something, but he still needs to do something to convince himself, I am Shiva, therefore everything is possible, this, that, and all the kabudul which is coming together with that. And that's why faith means very many things 
and faith is the power of Ajna Chakra. And some people have it, some people don't have it. For example, I have seen that the masters which are more Svadhisthana or Anahata, they are more romantic and they love this fairy tale with it. And the masters which have more Manipura or more Vishuddha, they are more Zen, the Japanese style, and they are the ones who generated dictums, like if you meet with Buddha on the road, kill him. No? Like, so what if he's Buddha? So why? You, know, it's like, um, you cannot demonstrate a master by this power of hammering the mind or whatever. You know? There have been masters in the martial arts of Kung Fu and maybe in Japan who are drunk all the time. Hattori Hanzo, the great swords maker from Kill Bill. Now I'm giving you a Hollywood uh, archetype, you know, who was drunk all the time, but he was making the best swords in the world. You know, the real samurai swords of the tradition. That's why I say, you know, but why would a master be drunk all the time? Because he still has a lot of new roses. He has a lot of problems. He did not solve his astral body. He did not solve his mental body. He went directly to Atman, reached enlightenment, and he's bringing back something. He will not be the terrible drunk like the ones who are not enlightened. The ones who are not enlightened, they will crawl through the mud, through the trough full of mud, like pigs. The drunken master of Kung Fu is drunk in a spiritual way. He is drunk in an elegant way. There is a drunkenness which is a little bit sattvic, a little bit, you know, like he is and he isn't. A drunk of the other type, the ignorant kind, gets drunk, takes a knife and kills somebody and then goes to prison or whatever. The drunken master of Kung Fu never does that. That means the spirit does control, but it does not control him all the time, and maybe he is depressed, maybe he is in the midlife crisis, maybe he has a problem with his serotonin and dopamine, and he is unhappy and so on, and he lives a life on the fringe. Part of him has been on Mount Everest, and has seen it, and can teach you how to go there, and part of him is like, nothing matters, yeah, I've been to Mount Everest. And I'm very calm about it. And I know that when I die, I'll become one with the ocean. And until then, until then, like Omar Khayyam, take a glass of wine and drink it, you know. Drink the wine and celebrate the life because that's all there is that you can do. Which, again, Jesus would disagree with. So, um, that's why it's about faith. And Jesus says, if you have at least a little bit of faith, you can move the mountains. But how many people have moved the mountains? Try to think. And even the disciples of Jesus, others, not all of them had the same after effect after they got enlightened. Theoretically, the 12 apostles of Christ, they got enlightened on the Pentecost day. 50 days after Jesus was crucified, 40 days after he was crucified, he ascended to heaven in the view of more several people. And then 10 days later, 50 days after his crucifixion, the disciples were all gathered in a place and they all got enlightened. The Holy Spirit came and all of them got in Samadhi. 
and they were like, it was a, like, whoa, you know, what happened? And that's how the Christian church started, because 12 disciples of Jesus received the Holy Spirit, and they became enlightened. And from there, they had seen with their own eyes what Jesus told them, and now they were it. But not all of them were equally efficient. Not all of them died by martyrdom. Not all of them manifested the same way. This reflection from the Spirit to Ajna Chakra is different, and it depends on the astrological sign of the samskaras from the previous lives, on a lot of factors. So, he said, theoretically, if you have faith, which means if you have this city of Ajna Chakra, which is not enlightenment, because remember, people can have this city of Ajna Chakra without being enlightened. And then when you have number six, and you don't have number seven, you can perform miracles, and you are not listening to God, which is the definition of the devil. The devil is 666 because it's not number 7. That number 7 is missing. The top of Mount Everest is missing. It's like the pyramid, which is without the top. The top is decapitated. No? Then you have 6. 6, the, this plan is here, but the top of the pyramid should be here. And exactly the top is missing. No? And then you have the faith. And then you can heal with your hands, you can see the future, you can levitate, you can do this, you can do that. Theoretically, it is considered that the devil, Satan from the mythology, has all the powers. Satan can pretty much do make anything happen. It's not that Satan is short on powers to make things happen. So, actually, Satan has faith. He believes that he can start a storm. He believes that he can stop a storm. He believes that he can make the day into night and the night into day. He believes that he can start an earthquake and he can stop an earthquake. So the faith is there. It's not the faith coordinated by Dharma, coordinated by God. It's a faith which is from down upwards and stuck here. Instead of being a faith which has gone all the way to God and then coming back and doing like Jesus said, hey, I can do whatever, but I'm doing only what God told me to show you. He could have done more. If you would have the power of Jesus, you would say, here is another one. Here goes another one. Here goes another one. No, but Jesus did the minimalistic thing, what God told him to do. And that's all. When the list was filled up, the list was filled up. There was no place for one more. And thus, Jesus here gives a reply, a mysterious reply about faith. But faith has to be explained because faith is the operative power in this universe. Is that the mind can do everything. And it's very nice when one like Abhinava Gupta or one like Shankara, or one like Milarepa, they have also a great faith. And when you have one like Ramana, it's not that Ramana is less spiritual, but he is not manifesting all that faith. Like Ramana never tried to levitate, say, I am Brahman, therefore I should be able to soar in the air, like a bird, simply because I am Brahman, and if I am Brahman, all the Maya 
will bend in front of me any way I want. That's true. But Ramana did not make himself believe that. He did not train. If Ramana Maharishi would have done three years of pranayama, focusing on the process of levitation, he would have acquired levitation. But he was not interested, he was not motivated, and therefore Ramana never demonstrated levitation, and he never said that he had the faith that he could levitate. And actually, I don't want to show it to you guys, because you don't deserve it. He never even said that he had done it in private. It was simply not there. Ramana Maharishi was very sincere, very puritanic in this way. He was not trying to impress or to give a false image of himself or to give, you know, he was honest. He was fair. And therefore, this is, understand please, the power of faith. Today, we have the materialistic power of faith. You believe you've got a house with a swimming pool? You shall have a house with a swimming pool. Yeah. The devil can do that also. Can materialize a villa with a swimming pool. Doesn't mean that that's what God wants you to be. For that, first you have to visit the top and then come down. Not from, you, you, you can come from above. Even before I reached enlightenment, I was a great wonder maker. And like Darren Brown and like Anthony Robbins and like Uri Geller. And I could produce miracles, miraculous phenomena. Yes, good for you. But they were not from God. They were ascending. And you had ascended to level six. And then you have got this faith. Now we have to see what spirit wants to manifest on plane six. It has to be with dharma, from dharma, with the will of God. Like this, that uh, um, Edgar Casey could go in a trance and see cures for diseases. Was this the will of God? Nobody can prove that it was the will of God. Maybe to a certain extent. But in a certain way, it could have been just an egoistic trip of Edgar Casey, Like this, Edgar Casey maybe had been a Tibetan yogi in a previous life, and he developed a huge ajna, and then he was born in America, and then these powers manifested. But did they manifest like in the case of Jesus, go down and do that to the humans? No. And thus, um, the faith is a very complex phenomenon which happens us to start the spiritual life, to unfold the spiritual life. But even after the accomplishment of the spiritual life, there is a lot of need of this faith for molding the nature, for shaping the nature. Now, theoretically, if all the yogis are perfect spirit, I am that, then how can a spiritual yogi be sick? Men sana in corpore sano. If my spirit is perfect and I am Shiva, then how does Shiva have cancer in the elbow or cancer in the throat like for Ramakrishna or whatever disease in the spine for Yogananda or diabetes like for Swami Vivekananda, the great one. You know, it's obvious that for these people the perfection from here had not seeped in down here. They were in the process. They were in the process. Therefore, even the masters 
have a sadhana or a dharma of their own to bring the pure, this perfection from here to bring it to the rest of their structures, to the rest of their chakras and bodies. And this can take a million years. And then when that yogi will have that, that yogi will walk on water, stop the storms, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, you know, whatever. Because in that moment you say, since I'm God, if I say your sins are gone, stand up, take your bed and go home, that's what will happen. But that's why Jesus represents perfection in that level. And the other yogis, Ramana Maharishi is almost at the opposite end. Like Ramana Maharishi is a child and Jesus is the sage, the old sage who has accomplished everything. They are both of them knowing the truth of the universe. I am that. Atman is Brahman. But this one can manifest it at the tips of their fingers while this one feels it, sees it, but the mind says, let's read the Hindustan time a little bit. No? If the Brahmana Maharishi would have used the time with Hindustan times to do Trataka and Pranayama, he would have acquired some things which would have served him later. They could even stop his cancer. So that's why I say faith is manifested in different ways at different levels, and it is this ultimate power of the mind. That if you believe that you can walk on water, you will walk on water. And when Jesus took this from Peter, Peter flushed in the water. And Jesus asked him cynically, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt it? Because that was the process. Peter walked three meters on water. And then he said, what the heck, am I actually walking on water? Then he flushed. No, he drowned. He went in, you know, because he doubted. He should have been constantly in that elated state. This elated state, Anthony Robbins and other people, they created in the workshop called Unleash the Power Within. You know? And in the end of two days and a half, they make you walk on fire. On Sunday, when they do UPW, Unleash the Power Within, they make hundreds of people walk on fire. And Anthony Robbins walks with them on fire. You walk on fire. Directly. So they show you that it's possible to go in a state of mind. And this state of mind is that you have to be like, ah, la, 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 la. like, don't think about the fact that it could burn you. You have to be excited, like drunk, keep positive and keep everything from here up. Ah, la, 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 and walk, walk, walk. Before you realize what you do, walk. Ah, la, 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 la. Did I just walk on fire and I didn't feel the burn? Yes. Yeah. Because it's a matter of faith. Faith produces this phenomena and it can produce, a, a firewalker can be enlightened or not enlightened. You can, if you would have asked Ramana Maharishi to walk on fire, probably he would have got badly burnt from it because he didn't have the siddhi of it. And there are people, I've seen people in Pattaya, not in Pattaya, in uh, what is it called? This island where they do the vegetarian festival. In Phuket, I've seen people at the vegetarian, tens of them and maybe a hundred or more of them walking on fire, one after another, one after another. And they did that for nights, for several evenings in a row. And the fire was big, believe me, there was a bad fire, which was about this high, 
burning coal. And it was like the size of this yoga hall, you know, it was like it was big. And these people were walking, some were running, some were walking really slowly and calmly, and they were gone into their thing. So uh, I'm telling you all these things to show you that faith is the operant power. And that's why Jesus clear when he says, if you have faith, faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The people who can make money, they believe that they can make money. And the people who are born in poor families, they are given counter-beliefs that money does not grow in the trees and whatever, and that they can't make money. And even when they try to make a business and to make money, they lose money and they don't make the money. Simply because they don't have the city to stay in this faith that, yeah, money is flowing on me like an avalanche, you know. Whatever I do, money is coming to me, and so on. Now, of course, you can say, but isn't this a karma, a good financial? Yes, and the karma makes that your samskara is that you believe that you can do it. It's both they are related. What came first, the egg or the chicken? No. Which was first? They both come together. No. The... The samskara is there because the karma is there. And because the karma is there, the samskara is developed and that faith is. And Jesus continues. And to me, it's slightly different. That's why I say this seems to be the third bullet. The first one was with your brother who can do a sin. The second one was have faith as a mustard seed and all that. And then he says, apparently, looking after the sheep. In those days, it was not a shame that some people were slaves or servants. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? No, like, my servant worked, and I'm saying, oh, my dear, you worked. That's not any master. Any person who had servants or something knows that you don't start kissing the ass of the servant because the servant did his job. The servant is a servant. No, Your dog is guarding your house. Then you can say, oh, won't we take him to sleep in the same bed with me because he guards? No, the dog is a dog and has to sleep in the dog house because that's his condition as a dog. And he said, would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me after I, while I eat and drink and after that you may also eat and drink? Like he treats the servant a little bit like a dog. He says, okay, you worked? Okay, then please lay the table, cook and lay the table, see if they cooked in the kitchen, lay the table, I will come and eat. And then afterwards, the servant can eat. So although the servant has worked the whole day, the servant is not getting any compensation for it, because he is a servant. That's his human condition. When there was a rebellion of the slaves, in Athens, the Athenians were gone, or in Sparta, I forgot, I think it was in Sparta. The Spartans war with the Athenians, and the slaves didn't go to war because slaves were not warriors. And they made a rebellion. And in the city, there were only the, old, the women, the children, and the elderly. And they could not cope. They tried to fight with them, and then a few of them got killed by the slaves who were rioting. And they went to the old man, to the elders, and they said, what do we do? He said, the slaves have ri are rioting and we cannot put them down. 
And the old man said, what did you try to do? You try to fight with them with your swords? Yes. But the warriors are gone. It's just the women and they are good, but they're not that good to be able to deal with the slaves. And the the old man told them, pick up your whips. The slaves are put back with the whips, not with the swords. As soon as they cracked the whips, the slaves went back into the... Because they were afraid of the whip, they are not afraid of the sword. Otherwise, as the Greeks have said, that would drive crazy any Marxist, democratic Marxist. Today, the slaves had the souls of slaves. Their soul was a soul's slave, a slave's soul. And they reacted to what the slaves reacted. They knew the values of the slaves, eating, drinking, having sex, and being whipped when you're undisciplined. Here Jesus says, if you had a servant and he would work the whole day, oh, poor him, he'd been sweating and rain, and then he comes, you would say, come on, I made some food for you. Only in the European Union today you would do that shit. Because we have become a Marxistic society. This democracy is a disease of the mind. Oh, poor guy, he worked the whole... Not only he worked the whole day, I'm even paying him. The servants in the old days, they are not getting paid. They belong to the master. No? And he says, he's coming, and then you say, come along now and sit down. No, wouldn't he not? This is Jesus, the lover. Jesus, the loving, compassionate Jesus. He said, would the master not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, Wait on me while I eat, like serve me, you know, be there. And after that, you may eat and drink. Because that's the condition, that's the karma of the slave. That's the karma of the servant. People today, they don't understand this. They consider this outrageous. But this is what is written in the words of Jesus. And Paul, in one of his letters later, he wrote exactly the same thing and in much more detail. No? Look what Jesus says that the master should do. He says, do you imagine that the master should say, oh, poor you, you've been digging in the garden the whole day, now come, I will give you some luxury dinner. No? He will say, now, after you finish all, go and cook, arrange, lay the table, I will come and eat and you will serve me while I eat. And then, like the dogs, you eat afterwards. And Jesus loves them. This is why people don't understand the nature of love, what love really means. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Jesus is asking you, would you thank to your servant because he did what you told him to do? I do. Because we live in a skewed society. And I have people who serve in Agama. They get even paid for what they serve in Agama. And after they do what I ask them to do, I tell them, thank you. Savadikab, Kopankab, thank you very much. No, that's not how things used to be. That's not what it is supposed to be. This is some sort of Svadistanistic weakness. It's a Svadistana like sheep. Masters can't even be masters. 
and not to mention what to say about the unconditional love of God. So why does Jesus give this terrible example, formidable example? He says, so you also, when you have done everything that you are told to do, because you are the servants of God, in case you don't realize. So you too, when you have done everything that you were told to do, the Ten Commandments and all that, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. They don't ask for rewards like a spoiled servant who says, I have uh, respected the moral and the ethical things, so now why don't I get a reward? There will be no reward. Your master is going to kick you in the ass because the heavenly master is not weak at all. And it's like, like stop being impertinent. This is called, in good old American slang, it's called entitlement, that people are entitled. They think they are entitled. But I have done my things. Wouldn't God come and pet me on the head? And God would say, you are a fucking servant. You just did what you are supposed to do. You should say, says Jesus, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Like you haven't done more than your duty. Ah, when somebody gets crucified for humanity, that's a little bit more than one's duty. That's a heroic, Christ-like consciousness. But just because you uphold the morals and the ethics, and because you do some spiritual practice or something, you think you need to be congratulated? People always tell me, no, this person and that person have done something wonderful for Agama. Why don't you say a few words to them about, yes, in Kali Yuga, we do that. But at the time of Jesus, it was like in between the lines, like you've just done your duty. It's for you. God is not benefiting that you do your duty. The only one who benefits that you do your duty is you. And that's why Krishna is right. You should do your duty and not ask for gratitude, not ask for thanks, not ask for reward, because it's just your duty. Until you become like Jesus, you are just a servant of God. And you have to behave like a servant. Even when you are Swami Shivananda, you are a servant of God. You are maybe a special servant, a servant that has very special duties. But still, you are a servant of God. Every guru in this world is a servant of God. And that's why this is less known in normal yoga, but in bhakti yoga, in Vaishnava bhakti yoga, as well as in Christianity, it's known that people should be humble that people should cultivate humbleness, humility, because in the end, like, what do you expect? What do you expect for just doing your duty? What are you, the king of the universe who was put in slavery and you deserve to be compensated? No. Not until you awaken. When you become like Ramakrishna or when you become like Abhinava Gupta, then you can say, I am the lord of the universe, sunken into oblivion. Until yesterday, sunken into oblivion. Then it's a different story. Then maybe you still can consider yourself a servant of God, or maybe you can consider yourself part of God, or one with God, or the friend of God, or something. But until that day comes, 
You are just the servant of God. And somehow Jesus inserts his here this terrible thing that some people are so entitled that they think that every time they move a finger, they should be congratulated and patted on their head and so on. When ultimately they only do their duty. And if you do your duty, it's good for you. Again, God has created this like a lila, like a game. If in the game some people do or don't do some things, in the end it's like you play Monopoly or God knows what, and you play it well or you play it bad. In the end, God can say, oh man, today we had a crazy game. You know? But it doesn't hurt anybody. If you do or don't do, it's only for you. If you do your duty. And that's why Jesus has spoken about responsibility against He has spoken about the faith. Have faith as a mustard seed. And now I hope I made you understand again that faith is a much bigger thing which is relevant for beginners and for great grandmasters. And then he gives this parable with a plow. But if the plow is doing his work, a servant is doing his work, it doesn't mean that the servant has to be spoiled for it or that the servant has to expect some rewards or some gratitude. Because it is our condition to be servants. Remember the covenant of God with Adam. Adam was chased out of the paradise and he was told, now you have to earn your daily bread with the sweat of your brow. You will be like, uh, uh, God told him a few curses, a few conditions of what the life of the human being is going to be in on earth in the time which will follow. And it's the condition of a slave. It's the condition of a servant. God treated Adam like an indisciplined servant. He said, okay, you displease me, fuck off. And you will go in that world and there it will be bitter and it will be like this and you will have to sweat every day just to put bread on your table and all that. And therefore, the condition of the human being on planet Earth is the condition of a servant. And we have to be humble with it. And the people who are arrogant and try to break through this thing, I am not a servant, they usually get kicked in the ass very, very bad because God hates arrogance. God, especially the Jewish God of Manipura, is very provoked when other people start having a big Manipura and says, really? Mm, let's see. No? And then you are getting into some terrible waters. And that's why Jesus recommends practice humbleness. Do your karma. Don't ask for rewards and be humble realizing that in the beginning you are just a servant of God. Rich or poor, emperor or normal person, you are a servant of God and you serve God. And then when you become like Shankaracharya, you become a favorite servant. And like Jesus himself says, when you reach the pure love, then you become the son of God. Then you are a child. You are not a servant anymore. You are family. But to become a family... You have to start from the position of servant of God. Enough. These were beautiful teachings for tonight. Meditate on this and come up with the questions. Thank you all. I don't know if next week I'm taking a theme or still doing the Gospel of Luke. 
as I said clearly, I want to reach to the end of this Gospel of Luke to conclude that uh, chapter in teaching. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all.